This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy Passover. To you as well. And Tablet's only editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Second day of the Omer and counting, baby. Oh my God, I was going to do it this year. It's not. It's never too late, right? I can pop in. I haven't ruined it. It's never too late. It's, it's only day two today. Come on. Today on the show, we're bringing you a conversation with Andy Markovitz, whose new book, The Passport as Home, Comfort in Rootlessness, is quite possibly Liel's favorite book this year. Our Gentile of the Week is Tablet's very own Maggie Phillips, who joins us to discuss the year-long interfaith series that she's been working on for the magazine, as well as our ongoing project, The Tent. Plus, a quick interview with a certain very famous singer who, let's just say, is uh, calling in from the Copacabana to talk about his friend Mandy. Did I give too much away? But look, I just want to say I'm I'm still in Passover la-la land. Pascal la-la land. Stephanie Butnick, first Seder ever for Edith Isadora. How was it? Oh, yeah, it was Edith's first Passover. It was so much fun and so cute. And again, like holidays just mean something different now that little Edith is around. And I'm like, I'm sort of watching her see it all and grab all the food and try to eat it, which is great. Uh, Love chopped liver, love brisket. Those were, you know, as we discuss her dietary milestones, her Jewish dietary milestones. But I will say as the youngest at the table, something that fell to her, of course, you know, as a, as a nine month old baby was to sing the four questions. It's never too early to start them. Yeah, totally, totally. She she practiced a lot. You know, we did scales with her. We did everything. And, you know, she had some help, but she did great. And I want to share a little bit of Edith singing the four questions. <laughs> Oh, she is in robust voice there. She she may be the best singer in the entire Butnick Cohen extended clan. You know, her pronunciation is very Ashkenormative, I'm just going to say. <laughs> Gaga normative. A lot of solves and stuff, but okay. We'll let it pass. The funny thing was, you know, the audio you're hearing is from something I recorded at Ben's family Seder. And his cousin, who's like in her 20s, she's like, wait, it was always an option for everyone to sing along <laughs> suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly that's allowed? Well, so Oppenheimer family Seder, two big things happened. And you've got audio, we've got audio. I'm going to get to the audio in a second. But first, we hosted the the Quintern, now promoted to the producer, Quinn Waller, for what I thought would have been, you know, maybe her seventh Seder or second Seder. I figured she went to one at College Hillel. I don't know. I had... I didn't know that we were going to be her. Well, Quinn, we we were your first ever Seder, right? You were my first ever Seder. You do have that honor. Wait, Quinn, how was it? Because I've heard about these Oppenheimer Seders. They sort of invite, you know, there's a bunch of Yale kids who sort of need a place to go. Like they they really do open their homes. So so what was it like? It was huge. I have never seen a bigger (laughs) table. I was introduced to so many people. I remember maybe three names. But it was good. It was far more accessible than I was expecting. I was expecting like really dense prayers and like stuff that I didn't know. And I was really prepared to feel embarrassed. But the Haggadah had cartoons in it. All right, Quinn, a lot of questions. First of all, did they do the part after the meal or did they just stop once the food arrived? No, they did it. They went all in. They went all in. So Mark Oppenheimer is leading a Seder. You are a producer of his podcast. Was there any moment where you were like, you know, could have tightened up, could have just done the, the, the eight plagues, could have just done three questions? There wasn't a moment of that, but there was a couple moments of like Mark saying, um, and me in my head thinking, <laughs> I'm going to cut that later. <laughs> How do you rate him as as Seder leader? I became like a nine out of 10, I think. Oh, thank you. Well, That brings us to the next question, right? Because as you were leaving and it was so great having you and you made the Brussels sprout salad and it was, it was, it was just fabulous. My kids loved you. Everyone loved you. But as you were leaving and you told me this had been your first Seder, which blew my mind, I then said, well, do you have a Seder for tomorrow night? And you said, well, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to an Orthodox Seder. So having just run the Seder that, you know, dumbs it down like nobody's business. Well, the unorthodox Seder. Right. Oh my God. Like, so tell us about night two and the the difference between the two. So night two, I went to my old Jewish studies professor's Seder. It was, it was intense. They made their own Haggadah. They wrote their own. They did their own translations of the Hebrew. We started at eight. We ended at one. Having experienced Second Night Seder, which sounds so legit, did you feel like, ah, oh, Mark's, Mark's Seder was kind of weak sauce? 
No, you know what I realized with your Seder is as someone that's converting, I very much get the liturgical aspects of Judaism, but I, the like family cultural thing hasn't really clicked for me. And I think it did click for me at your Seder. Like I understood the family component of Judaism and how it's like a community-based religion. That finally clicked for me. That's very sweet to hear. And and I hope that one piece of it that will be unforgettable for you as it was unforgettable for me was that Clara Oppenheimer debuted a new musical composition. She and her friend Miriam Perry had spent Friday during the day at Miriam's house composing their parody of We Don't Talk About Bruno, the ubiquitous song from the movie Encanto. And their song is We Don't Talk About Pharaoh. And I have Clara's permission to share a little bit of it. Here is Oppenheimer and Perry with We Don't Talk About Pharaoh. We don't talk about Pharaoh, no, no, no. We don't talk about Pharaoh. Normally I would say I see your Encanto and raise you Aladdin, uh, which is what our Passover play <laughs> composed and written by Hudson, Secret Leibowitz, was set to the tune of, including such hits like No Mr. Pharaoh, Sir, Let My People Go. But we don't we don't record in Yontif, no judgment there. But what I will say, Quinn, I'm 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 so fascinated to hear this distinction, because Day one, we had the proper Seder. It included a 10-course a extravaganza and absolute, complete dictatorial sort of leadership by myself. It, it was a very Mussolini-esque Seder. It's like, you read now! And then interrupted by what even to me after a while felt like one interjection too many. And that's weird because they were literally all by me. They were literally all my interjections. Like, and this reminds me of something the Mulbim used to say about this particular thing. And at some point, I was like, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm getting hungry. I, I don't want any more of this. So then we get to the state. It was very lovely. It was wonderful. Uh, really, I think one of the best we have in years. Everyone had a really good time. And then it's day two, and, and we do it at a friend's house. We do it all over again. And our dear friend, Kylie Unell, host of 49 Days to Stretch My Soul, the Omer Counting podcast from this here, Tablet Studios, was there too. And then I did an interjection, and then she did an interjection. And at some point, I was like, oh my lord, there are two of us. This thing is going to last until like May 3rd. Like, it's there never ending. There are two loudmouth podcasters there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. And then the following day, which is perhaps the best part of it, we had sort of a Sunday brunch uh, with a Catholic friend, a Muslim friend, and us. And it was basically the three levels of playing the game. It was like, you, it's Ramadan. You don't eat nothing. You, <laughs> you can have some of the things on the table, but not the bread. You, go ahead and dodge whatever Easter you want. Easter brunch. That's mm -hmm. right. Painted eggs only. Listen, Passover was amazing. But a few days before, we had an exodus of our own, right? We, we parted the sea and landed on Virginia Beach. Yeah, so we got out on the road again. Our first live show since since the, the before times, the pre-COVID times, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, the Tidewater region. What good people they were down there. What an amazing live show that was. We interviewed Jew of the Week, uh, Representative Elaine Luria, Jewish congresswoman from that region who represents that district. NFL Hall of Famer Bruce Smith was our Gentile of the Week. Serious Gentile, awesome dude. I think we just need a brief recap about, am I wrong that what we need to talk about are the cab rides? A tale of two taxis. Now, here we are. We finished our first live show in forever since before COVID. We're elated. We've had a good night rest because all of us are away from children and so are refreshed and happy and rosy-cheeked. And because there are a lot of us, we take two separate cabs to the airport. Mark and Stephanie, what happened in your cab ride? So Mark and I were just like excitedly chattering. It was totally upbeat. We weren't fighting. We were just like excitedly, cheerily talking as Northeasterners do, talking fast. You, you're being Jews, in other words. You're yeah. just being yeah, yeah, big yeah, yeah, Jews. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of it, at the end of it, we pull up to uh, the airport. And as we're getting out, the cab driver says to us, well, I hope y'all resolve your differences. And we were like, differences. And we realized the tone in which we were talking was just to his Southern ears. It could only be fighting. We're like, we're, this is just how we talk. So then we get into the airport and we're trying to explain this to Leal and Josh, who are the other cab. And it turns out their experience was even better. So Josh and myself and Tanya Singer, uh, our audience development director, were in another cab. And we're sitting there 
and we're talking. And at some point, we notice the cab driver, you know, sometimes you could tell that the cab driver is in your business paying super close attention. <laughs> I noticed this a little bit when we started saying Jew this and Jew that. I think for like a brief moment, he's like, oh, no, I have some crazy white supremacist in this cab. They don't <laughs> like the Jews. But then he realized we were Jews. He just stopped us midway through. He was a member of a, of, of a big local black Baptist church. And he's like, y'all are Jews? We're like, yeah, we record this podcast. He's like, oh, that's amazing. Then he started telling us about the Christian podcast that he listened to and played some very good Christian hip hop for us. And then as we stopped by the curbside, he said something like, oh, it's so nice talking to you. And Tanya said, well, if you really like listening to them, this whole podcast, you could, <laughs> you could hear them every week. I said, oh, wow, I have to download this. And he pulls out his iPhone and he subscribes to Unorthodox <laughs> and presses play. And as we walk away, we hear Mark's voice saying, this is Unorthodox. <laughs> <laughs> Just fantastic. Peace with our Christian brothers. Sir, thank you for a ride. That was a five-star ride since you're listening to this right now. You should, if you're still listening, if we've held your attention, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. If you do email, let us know who you are. We would love for you to be our, um, our Tidewater region correspondent. News of the Jews, one item this week that we just couldn't stop paying attention to, every year, the massive Passover fails. Stephanie Butnick, you have been our correspondent on the ground this year for Pesach, looking at the ways that the Gentiles get Passover wrong. So during Hanukkah, we had a lot of fun with Hanukkah fails, this idea that like every company gets Hanukkah wrong and is trying to sell us stuff that has all the wrong holidays um, written on it. I'm, I'm here to report that no one has fixed this problem. And actually this time it was the politicians who did the worst job. This is the Michigan House Republicans tweeted, wishing you peace and blessings this Passover, which by the way, okay. That, yeah, blessings. Um, thanks for your <laughs> blessings. Um, this is happy Passover. There's some blue in there. There's the H is a glass of wine. Okay, we're doing okay. Um, there's some Jewish stars. Okay, there are two loaves of bread. <laughs> they're not, and, and they're not even challah. Like they're not challah bread as they might call it. You know, the way the way I interpret that they're in the bottom, they're like the chametz that you sort of like hide away or sell to the Gentiles. But can I tell you about my absolute favorite Passover greeting that made me so happy that this this is what I want on my Seder table every year moving forward? This comes to us from Governor Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, who wished her constituents, Jewish and otherwise, happy Passover to all those celebrating. And then there's the illustration. Ready for this? I'm, I'm taking this from, from, from left to right. Okay, here's what we see. A Hanukkah. <laughs> With the correct amount of candlesticks, though. So yep, she got yep. Hanukkah right. A, a kosher Hanukkah, a glass of wine, a sufganiya or jelly donut, an apple dipping in honey, and a pomegranate, and a Torah scroll, and a dreidel. She's literally covering all her bases. There's Hanukkah, oh, there's, gelt. there's Pesach, there's Gelt, there's Rosh Hashanah. There's the thing you wash your hands with if you're religious. There's a Torah, there's everything you want right there in one easy-to-use illustration. What about this one? This comes to us from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Marty, the girls, and I wish a happy Passover celebration to all those sitting around the Seder table tonight. May this joyous evening be full of peace and fellowship. Ding, ding, ding. Fellowship! That is the, that is what we want to see. We want to see that word fellowship. We want to bring it back in all sorts of Jewish contexts. Okay, so this is happy Passover, um, April 15th, 2022. Okay, that's a, that's one day um, for an eight-day holiday, but that's fine. This text is over laid on an image of, I think, a carafe of wine, some grapes, okay, tasteful, some like fronds of something, and literally slices of bread. They're not fronds. They're, 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 they're sheaves of wheat. Oh my God. <laughs> they're literal chametz. They're like the manifestation, the embodiment of chametz. The manifestation. The manifestation <laughs> of chametz. I think this is like sliced white bread, which is just an affront to our people at this point. Like, give us some seeded rye if you're going to completely get our holiday wrong. It's just a reminder of how we Jews, we three Jews, haven't figured out how to monetize our business into a consulting business where every politician who has no Jews on staff or no Jewishly knowledgeable people on staff can just call us up and for one small fee, three figures, maybe the low 
four figures. We will vet your holiday greetings to make sure you don't do anything incredibly stupid. In fact, we will design and sell by the next big Jewish holiday new unorthodox greetings for specifically (laughs) Goyesha politicians. It's completely bipartisan, Democrat, Republican, Green Party, Jobbik, you name it. Whatever your party is, we will design it for you because please, people, no more sheaves of wheat on your virtual holiday cards. It's honestly anti-Semitic if you don't hire us. (laughs) You know, here we are spending all this time being negative, talking about all the bad art that comes with Passover, but there is some great art. This Passover, we have the privilege of welcoming I'm saying this without a touch of exaggeration. One of the absolute greats. Are you ready for this? Drum roll, please. Because we have with us Barry frickin' Manilow. He has a new musical that opened off-Broadway last Wednesday with music by him, lyrics by his longtime collaborator, Bruce Sussman. It is called Harmony, and it tells the story of the comedian harmonists, six talented young men, Jewish and Gentile alike, who came together in a 1920s Germany. It took the world by storm with a blend of music and stage antics that are sort of like the Marx Brothers' avant la lettre. We called up Barry and Bruce to learn a little bit more about the show and about some of the legendary songs that have brought us so much joy. Raining down as cold as I. Shadows of a man, a face through a window, crying in the night. The night goes into morning just a Barry Manilow and Bruce Sussman, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your latest collaboration, Harmony. Tell us the story. It's set in uh, between the wars in Germany and other locations throughout Europe. Six young men, extraordinary talents, and in a very, very difficult time. The country is uh, is on its knees. This record hyperinflation, followed by the depression, and these six guys come together to create an entirely new brand of entertainment. To put it in modern terms, the Manhattan Transfer meets the Marx Brothers, and they sing in alleys and on street corners in Berlin. They're discovered and have a meteoric rise to success, selling millions of records. In 1933, Hitler comes to power. Some of them are Jews, some of them are not. What I just described to you is our first act. What happens to them on this collision course with history is our second act. When you write a very specific play like Harmony, and when you feel sort of the weight of history, does that impact the songwriting at all? Do you find yourself in a different emotional state? Or is craft, craft, and it doesn't matter if it's about love or Hitler? Well, I found myself making records for the radio. I realized as a composer... You can only, there's only one um, topic you can write about, which is I love you, or maybe I miss you. I love you, or I miss you. Anything else uh, is a, a Broadway show song. It's a Broadway song. It'll never get on the radio. So you're stuck with I love you, or I miss you. That's it for pop music. And, you know, I had a, you know, a real long string of I love you and miss you songs. And, you know, they were fun to write. They were very difficult for me to write. I've had a lot of success with it, but it's very hard. When we started with Harmony, it was like the floodgates opened. I could write anything, any kind of music, any kind of style I wanted to, because we were writing for situation and character. And every situation was different in this play. That means my melodies could go from down here to up there. It was, they were going to be sung by different people, not just by me. It was so different and so much more rewarding than anything I'd ever done in the pop world. Yes, it's still a composing job, but for me, it was just, uh, just thrilling to do this. I'm a huge, huge fan. And and one reason was that you strike me as one of very few performers who could really sell every song that they sing. It doesn't matter if you're singing, you know, something on your 80s album or Christmas album or any other song, something that you wrote, something you didn't write. You really make me believe that this is a Barry Manilow song, which I've listened to enough music and seen enough performances to know is a rather rare talent. I want you, if you can, to talk a little bit about this essence and and to ask, did it maybe come from learning the craft writing for commercials, knowing that you are here to convince people to have an emotional reaction to this performance? The truth is that I believe what I'm singing. Uh, even though I've done it for so many years, when I, I am inside each song, 
Each night, it's as if it's the first time I've ever done it. When I talk to these people, it's as if I've the first time I've ever, ever met them or ever spoken to them. I, I never studied this. This, you know, this didn't, this was just the way it sounded because I never studied acting or I never wanted to be an actor. I never even wanted to do this performing. The only thing I could do on that stage was be real. And I've never lost that. And so that's why you're getting what you're getting from me because it really is real. Right there, whenever I do Mandy or or somewhere in the night, or even now, I believe it. I believe that what I'm singing as if I've never sung it before. And that's why you're feeling what you're feeling. And maybe maybe that's why they come back over and over. Can't tell you how happy I am to see you uh, back where you've always wanted to be, in the theater. I'm very excited to, to see the show. Both of you are absolute legends and are very grateful to you for being our guests. Thank you. Andy Markovitz is a professor of comp lit and German at the University of Michigan. At the age of nine, he moved with his father from Romania, first to Vienna and then to New York. And that whole background informs his latest book, The Passport as Home, Comfort in Rootlessness. Liel likes a lot of books. It has been a while since I've heard him fell about a book the way he felt about this one. It was Liel's great privilege to sit down and talk shop with Andy Markovitz. Professor Annie Markowitz, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored. So listen, I read your book, The Passport as Home, on a recent flight to Israel. I have this really complicated philosophy of which books you bring on trips. It has to be a book that is not exactly about the place where you're going to, but kind of adjacent to. And I thought, well, you know, a memoir by a person born in Romania, schooled in Vienna, found its way to Colombia. It's kind of good because the book makes this kind of argument in favor or in support of or in celebration of really the idea of rootless cosmopolitanism. And I thought to myself, here I am. I don't believe in that, right? I'm going back to the motherland where I was born, where Jews are kind of tethered and rooted to the ground. And I will easily dismiss this book as I land in sun-drenched Tel Aviv and, and, and find myself you know, feeling like, like a newborn Jew. None of that European exilic mindset for me. And I read it over a long al flight. First of all, it is a tremendous memoir. We'll get to some of the, the magic in it. Uh, and anyone listening to the show who likes us is going to love it. But the book moved me much more than I thought it would and, and kind of made me reconsider my approach to this idea of rootless cosmopolitanism. Before we go into any of this, kindly give us the gist. Who, who are we meeting in this book? Who is this person whose memoir are we reading? Well, um, born in the western part of Romania, in the Hungarian-speaking Romania, which is, by the way, very different from what American Jews associate with Romania. The Romania, Romania, the, the wonderful song, which, of course, is Eastern or real Romania in the Moldova and Wallachia. This is in the Habsburg, Romania, the Hungarian, uh, German-speaking part, Timisoara. I was born in 1948, and I grew up in this uh, Holocaust-ravaged family of middle-class Hungarian-speaking Jews who, of course, extol German high culture. Let's stop there for a second. It's really weird. I mean, as you said, these are people who've lost many of their immediate family members to the Holocaust, and yet here they are playing the German operas, revering German high culture. And, and when it comes to Yiddish or Yiddishkeit, it's sort of like, ah, that's kind of gross. How is that possible? Well, I mean, uh, you could argue that since Moses Mendelssohn, German became the, the lingua franca of educated Central European Jews. It was their everything. And they read German, they spoke German, they revered it. This was it. And uh, especially my mother, who it's a class issue also. My mother of a higher class than my father privately tutored and so on and so forth. Her German was impeccable, and she read everything to me in German other than one amazing book by 
uh, Molnar, which is the the Boys of Pal Street, the Pal Utsoi Fiuk, which is this amazing. I love that book. I grew up on it in Hebrew. It was translated. Amazing. That's the only thing that my mother read to me in Hungarian. And so I grow up in this an apartment building, which actually housed, was really a small Habsburg world. We had a Romanian family that was Romanian Orthodox above us. Then there were Romanian family who were Catholic next to us. Then there were Hungarians who were Protestant. And so it's in this amalgam of things where I grow up and uh, where um, it's very clear that I'm the other in many, many forms. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, we're in Romania, but we speak Hungarian. Uh, uh, Hungarian, but we're Hungarian, but we're not Hungarian because we're Jewish. In Jewish, we were, uh, you know, differently Jewish. So the whole thing is this form of marginalism. This becomes then central to my life. And it's also the world, and which in fact creates this horrible wor- word of ruthless cosmopolitanism uh, formed by Stalin and Andrei Zhdanov in the 40s. And then it becomes a campaign which uh, Stalin uh, launched and which had he not died in the midst of it, arguably some people think could have been like the Holocaust, uh, basically purging the Soviet Union of its Jews. And the word cosmopolitan becomes a complete code word for Jew. That's what it means. So it's in this world that I grow up as a ruthless cosmopolitan, as a Jew who then revels in the the word of, uh, and what this entails, namely being ruthless. However, becoming then rooted in the uh, huge continent of the United States, not a particular place in the United States. So, uh, you know, as I discussed in the, in the book, Cambridge, Massachusetts, I mean, I'd love to be from New York and I'd love to be from Brooklyn, but I'm not. So there's this imagined New York, which I constantly strive for, but ultimately have to abide by being ulti- anchored in the United States, just to end, in which I then revel in my passport, which I carry with me all the time. So the book contains multitudes, truly amazing riffs on the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and the magic of dogs and a million other topics that are just so really heartwarming. But it's something you said right now that really, I think, kind of explains the, the heart of the argument. It's sort of like, I would love to be from X, but I'm not. But now I realize that this gives me some kind of really vantage point that no one else has into this culture. In other words, let's take this term, ruthless cosmopolitanism, that was clearly intended as a not just derogatory, but as you mentioned, borderline genocidal or genocidally intentioned uh, terminology to sort of denigrate and other Jews and, and use it to really kind of examine the things that give us strength. And and I see your vantage point in this book, and it's very similar to my own. I'm also an immigrant who grew up dreaming of the United States of America. I came here and just like you, you know, there's no greater compliment you could pay me than saying, oh, your English is so unaccented. You know, this is because the aspiration here is to become American. Tell us a little bit, how, how does this otherness inform your thought? You come here, uh, well, you've traveled back and forth as, as a kid, but eventually you settle at Columbia University. How does at that point your Europeanness, your Jewishness, your otherness inform your vision, your ideas, your view of the world and of America? Well, in fact, I always argue that it's in America that I become a comfortable Jew. And it's in New York that I become a comfortable Jew. I was not that. We always whispered. My father and I always whispered, lowered our voices when we talked about anything Jewish. And it's in New York and at Columbia and above all, also with the help of a particular person, namely this guy, Jerry Cates, whom I discuss, who was my tutor in in, in statistics at the business school. It's through Jerry Cates that I become sort of this New York Jew. I learn actually some Yiddish. It's through him that I get to know Romania, Romania. It's through him that I get to know Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers. In other words, I become basically an East European Jew by virtue of meeting him and living in New York. And it's this learning process that defines who you are. And I love, I mean, the rock and roll parts were my favorite, obviously, because I I love rock and roll. But the part like you get here, like the Grateful Dead, here's a kid who grew up listening to opera with his mother in Timisoara. I was like, okay, I'm going to really kind of understand that and like learn and study and and kind of like almost, you know, almost like ritualistically work my way into 
this thing and and sort of define yourself by study, which is like the most Jewish thing in the world. Does that ring a bell? Totally. I mean, as I say, the the chapter on the Grateful Dead is called My American Family, and it's the most American of bands. And there was a certain, from the the get-go, when I went to see them in September of 1969 at the Fillmore East, and and I fell in love with it. And it always, going to these well over 100 or many more shows, you know, over these years, it always gave me a sort of comfort, which is, I can't describe. And even there, however, I'm marginal. I'm probably the, the only deadhead who actually never do, does drugs. I'm the only deadhead who was who was grading Blue Book in some of these concerts. I was worried that I'm going to lose someone's exam because I took it with me to New Haven or whatever I was grading. But that was my, my I just love that music. And I love what they stood for in some ways. I mean, it, it's it's the the most Americanness other than my passport that I feel all the time. You're saying, you know, in America, you're an idea, and so am I. You know, you're the only country founded not on, you know, sort of like continuous lineage of like people sitting on their, you know, ancestral land. You're you're an idea, the you know, the home of the brave, etc., the place where we could come and invent ourselves as a nation. Guess what? Jews Jews understand that very well, don't don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And it really goes back to that fateful soccer match, World Cup final between Hungary and Germany on the 4th of July, 1954, when my father and I are listening to this in Timisoara. And the Hungarians lose, which is the biggest upset of all time in in World Cup history. And my father is not particularly upset about this. The Hungarian broadcaster is crying. Yeah, we'll never forget this. And my father is not particularly upset. And then he says something like, you know, the only thing that matters to you is that uh, these are two bad nations, he tells me in Hungarian, really not evil nations that did not do very good things to your family. But the only thing that really matters to you in, in, in on this day is that, in fact, it happens to be a match on the birthday of the United States of America on the 4th of July. My father knew about this. And I probably looked at him like, he's deranged. What is this? I knew nothing about America at the time. So America becomes this sort of idea from already in Romania, uh, this abstract thing that is clearly something good from the soccer match where the two protagonists of whose culture we are fluent, okay, namely Hungarian and German, is seen as bad or as evil or is not. And, and so don't worry about the, the particular result of this match. And that's a very, very fundamental, formative uh, thing for me in, in terms of also my love of soccer and also on and on. And then, of course, my chapter on Germany, my ambivalent uh, relations to Germany, where I become this public intellectual and in some ways uh, extol uh, German liberal democracy. I think the Bundesrepublik in many ways is a wonderful place in terms of what it did. Yet, I will never feel feel comfortable. And uh, I feel also guilty about that in some ways. You know, here's this country that bestows its highest um, civilian honor on me, that gives me honorary doctorates and all this, and I still will never, ever love them. And I will not love their soccer team. And if you want to meditate on topics uh, such as Judaism, cosmopolitanism, history, soccer, dogs, Rolling Stones, (laughs) Grateful Dead, Columbia in the 60s, Anything in between a, a true tour de force of, of what I think an intellectual ought to be, someone alive in the world, you have to read The Passport as Home. Professor Annie Markowitz, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. 
This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Last year, Maggie Phillips has been reporting for Tablet about different religious communities in the United States as part of a grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations to improve religious literacy. We love Maggie, and we've long wanted to get her on the podcast to talk about these great stories she's been writing for Tablet. And today is our lucky day. I think the confluence of Passover and Easter, everything came together. Mark and I spoke with our colleague, Maggie Phillips. Maggie, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. So you started as a tablet fellow and then stuck around thanks to a grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation. Could you tell us a little bit about what your mandate has been for the past year? Yeah. So my remit is religious literacy. The idea is there's not a lot of it in America currently as people are disaffiliating from traditional religion but there's still a lot of curiosity, I think, there. I see that certainly in my work. As soon as you tell people that you're a religion writer or a religion journalist, people want to talk to you about it more. And so this idea is just to kind of let people know about this diverse faith landscape in our country that makes us as Americans so unique. And you're not Jewish yourself, but you work at Tablet now. So tell us, like, how did you get to Tablet? How did you find us? I have always been really drawn to kind of heterodox kind of media spaces. One of our participants in the Tent Interfaith Project described Tablet's readership as people who are maybe a little left of center but want to go north. I think that's a good description of Tablet, but I also think it's kind of a good description of the sort of media I find myself drawn to. And so I just noticed the Tablet sort of came at things from a different angle. And I couldn't tell you like the first article that ever drew me in, but it was certainly something in my media consumption diet. And then one day I saw Barry Weiss tweet that there was this Tablet journalism fellowship. And I'd been kind of doing what I call light mommy blogging and doing a little bit of copywriting. And I thought, well, gosh, this sounds amazing. And Tablet seems like the kind of place that won't care that I'm not Jewish. And I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring. And I was shocked to find that I was a finalist and then that I'd been accepted. And that's where I find myself today. And I did in my application essay, I mentioned, you're probably wondering why someone who has the College of the Holy Cross under education on their resume is applying to tablet. 
Um, but it just because it felt like a space that was really open to other points of view and just kind of the truth and different perspectives. Can you tell our listeners like your favorite three articles that you've written for us? Probably the Hindus in Northern Virginia, the witches in Salem, and the Buddhists in Chicago. And you've gone to all these places. You've done really, really, really deep reporting. Tell us, I I feel like witches in Salem, I was not expecting that on like the interfaith circuit. So tell us about a little bit about that one. They do this thing called Dinner with the Dead in Salem, Massachusetts, where these modern day practitioners of witchcraft have this dinner in total silence to try to commune with their dead loved ones. And certainly if you read more about the faith landscape in America today, there are a lot of folks who are practitioners of witchcraft and that's a valid perspective when you're talking about religious belief and spirituality in contemporary America. So it was really cool because you do have these folks who have these deep held beliefs and for whom it is their spirituality, but because it's held during Halloween at Salem, there are also people who are just like massive hocus pocus stands who are just out there in the street. I mean, you can barely walk for all of the people in costume and yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And I wrote about it in the piece. You have this Catholic walking into a hotel bar with two warlocks to write for a Jewish magazine. And, (laughs) you know, to quote Yogi Berra, only in America, right? The thing that I found so interesting about studying religion is that you can sort of use it as a lens to look at everything, right? To look at what's on TV, to look at why people are doing what they're doing. So how did you first sort of get interested in looking at the world this way? Was it because of how you were raised? Did it come out of your own personal beliefs? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I was raised in a religious household. My parents are both Catholic and I am as well. And uh, oh my gosh, we always joke that you couldn't sit down to a movie with my mom without her saying, well, actually, if you think about it, this is kind of a metaphor for belief or faith. And we'd be like, mom, yes, okay, fine. But you know, the older you get, you have your mom's voice in your head and... (laughs) your mom's voice becomes your inner monologue, right? And I realized that I did that all the time with stuff. And I went to the College of the Holy Cross, which is a Jesuit school. And the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius Loyola, has this concept of finding God in all things. And there's nothing that you can't attribute or trace back to or somehow find the divine in. And so when you view the world that way, it becomes very easy to be open to these little moments of grace, these little moments of connection to find the similarities. And that I think is one of the things I've loved about this Arthur Binding Davis Foundation job and the Ignatian spirituality that formed me in college is it focuses so much more on the connections than the disparities. And you're much more open and attuned to, oh my gosh, this is a parallel with something that I heard when I talked to this other faith group, because you're just focused on finding the commonalities as opposed to what makes people different. Maggie, I remember when we welcomed you as a tablet fellow, as this Gentile military wife from Kansas. You'd like been reading commentary and tablets that you already knew a lot about us. You were definitely Jew-jacent, probably more so than most of the people at Fort Leavenworth. Yeah, for sure. What's been new to you in the couple of years that you've been with tablet? How would the conversation go differently now when Kathleen or Mary Jo sidles up to you? I'm just picking Gentile names out of a hat. I literally have a daughter named Mary Kathleen. So, so you, you chose well. And they say, like, what are those Jews like when Mary Kathleen said, Mary Jo Kathleen Maureen says that to you? What do you say? First of all, they're fascinated, especially Christians, because they sort of forget that Jesus was Jewish, I feel like. And it's like, don't you want to know more about this? For me, oh my gosh, it's changed so much about my own spirituality. I've started printing out things to read on Sundays. I've become much more intentional about setting aside a day where I'm like, look, this is our day of rest. And so, yes, that that has been one big change. I would also say my recommended Instagram reels have changed a lot. (laughs) I get so many recommendations for wig accounts now that I never used to get. Oh, so many different accounts, uh, recommendations about going to the mikvah. I don't know how Instagram has figured this out, but they 
<laughs> they have got my number. They're like, are you a married woman writing for tablet? Yes. Yeah. Somehow they found out. So those have been two big changes. But yeah, again, just in terms of my spirituality, like there's so much intentionality that comes with sort of culturally with Judaism around you know, whether you keep kosher or whether you keep Sabbath, however it is that you're observing, it requires so much intentionality. And to me, it's just brought so much mindfulness to my to my life. I don't just stop and eat anymore. I'm like, wait, this is a meal. This is an opportunity to stop and connect and to be grateful. And it's just kind of, in a way, sort of just enchanted my my whole day to day. When you sit in our meetings and like on this show, like we're pretty irreverent. We take for granted that we can sort of like joke and laugh at stuff. When you first heard that, was that very weird to you? Is that is there a Catholic analog to that sort of like loving sort of ribbing? There is a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who I'm of whom I'm not a huge fan, but who has some good one liners. And there's a quote from G.K. Chesterton about how a religion that you can't laugh at isn't a religion at all, or it's not worth your time. And I have a great story from my daughter from just the other day, actually. I was talking to her about how it's important to do the right thing for other people, to be kind to other people, even if they're not kind to you, or you can't wait around for them to do the right thing before you are kind to them first. And in the New Testament, Christ has a bit of advice where he says, if someone asks you to walk one mile with him, go with him too. At which point my nine-year-old says, yeah. And then they're like, why are you still here? (laughs) (laughs) And then they're a little creeped out that after mile two, you're still walking with them. Like, give me some space. And I was like, well, gosh, Alice. (laughs) So listen, do you have a question for us? As you know, being a a listener, the Gentile of the Week always gets to ask a question of of the, the Jewish panel of experts, me and Stephanie today. So what can we tell you? So my father is like nearly 100% Irish Catholic. And my question for you is why is it that so many jokes that I hear priests tell on pulpit in their homilies, I have also heard as jokes about rabbis. Why are so many Jewish jokes and Patty jokes interchangeable? I can give you some examples if you want. Yeah. Can you give an example? Sure. The first one would be the church that had a, I believe, a bat problem and they were able to get rid of the bats. And someone asked the priest, what did you do to get rid of the bats? And he said, oh, it's easy. I just confirmed them all and they never came back. (laughs) And I've heard that joke also with bar mitzvah. I feel like that speaks more to like the similarities among like retention. The conversations you hear in the Jewish community are like, how do we get the young people to go to synagogue? And like, those are happening in Christian spaces as well, right? Like to me, it almost shows that there are like so many more similarities, primarily in like communal life than than differences, right? I guess I would just say that I think, you know, one thing that's interesting to me, what you're talking about is sort of bad pulpit humor. And I would just say, without offering this as any sort of final or or bulletproof explanation, that Jews and Catholics are actually alike in that the homily for Catholics and the the sermon for Jews are a little bit uncomfortable because really in in the Catholic Church, the homily is supposed to be very brief and really the the service is about the mass, right? It's about it's about communion. It's about the way the wine and the wafer. And in Judaism, you don't need to have a sermon at all, right? It's about hearing the Torah read. And then in theory, the sermon is a devar Torah, some words of Torah. So for both of these traditions to do something in the American style, which is to say Protestant sermon, where you actually get to give a speech that has its own structure and its own legs is actually kind of embarrassingly contrary to the religion, right? Like priests aren't supposed to give sermons. They're supposed to give a brief homily and Jews aren't supposed to give American style Protestant sermons. It's, it's supposed to be about the Torah. In each case, it's like, what are we going to do? We'll start with like a dumb, you know, bar joke. And then we'll like get it out of the way and move on to the good stuff. Whereas Protestants actually know how to preach, yes. right? Protestants don't need the entree, you know, joke on a little, little on-ramp with a dumb joke because they have a tradition that going back at least to Luther has been about the preached word and they would go on, you know, they're the ones who can go on for hours extemporaneously. There's a Puritan version. There's obviously a black church version. There's Pentecostal versions, but Jews and Catholics, I think are in both cases to even give the sermon is a little bit cringy. That's my theory. Maggie, we'll, we'll be by you soon. Um, soon by you. Thank you for just like everything. I love all your pieces. There's going to be a link to all your pieces in the show notes. It's so nice to introduce you to our listeners. And thanks for everything that you do for us. Thanks for fellowshipping with us. <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> and we love it. In this case, it, it works though. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Stephanie.
Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? You know, I listened this week to the interview we did not long ago with the late, great Gilbert Gottfried, who left us last week. And at some point, I'm, I'm singing his praises because I absolutely loved that irreverent genius. And he says in his normal voice, not in his Gilbert voice, he says, you sound like a rabbi reading my eulogy over my casket. And so, sir, three last words to say to you. Baruch Dayan Emet. Blessed be the true judge. And may your memory, Gilbert, be a blessing. And the name of that act all throughout the aristocrats. And I should say that if you want to hear our interview with Gilbert Gottfried, you can go wherever you get your podcasts and listen to Unorthodox episode 251. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I'm celebrating some happier occasions in the tablet universe. I'm so excited about Kylie Unell's new podcast, 49 Days to Stretch My Soul. I'm also so, so happy for our colleague, Sam Hacker, who married her beshert, Alex Marcus. They are on their honeymoon right now. And I promise, Sam, I will not email you while you're there. And also... Our beloved Sarah Fredman Ader got her doctorate. She is now Dr. Sarah Fredman Ader, and we will only be referring to her as such forever in perpetuity. So mazel tov to all of our fave tablet people on these exciting accomplishments. And I'm tossing this mazel tov to our listener, Louise Rose, who wrote in and just wanted us to say mazel tov to Yasha Margolis from the Jewish Center of Princeton. So mazel tov for everything. Mazel tov for the, the peace and the blessings and the fellowship that you've brought to the world. Mazel tov to Louise Rose for alerting us to your greatness. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. And the team includes Sara Fredman, Ader, Daron Rusquet, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by longtime listener and super fan and musician extraordinaire Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by two rabbis, Joshua Kulak at the West End Synagogue in Nashville, Tennessee, and the Gilbert Gottfried superfan Rabbi David Komarovsky of Canton, Ohio's Temple Israel. We come to you from the IRL offices of Tablet Studios, where we are replenishing the chametz in anticipation of next week's show. Shalom, friends. Passover's amazing. I want to say, low-key, my favorite holiday. Not low-key at all, actually. Low-key, am I saying that because of you, Quinn? Do you say low-key? What does that mean? What is that? What? Low-key. Like, low-key. <laughs> right. I get, I get how it's spelled, but how is it used? <laughs> Teach me Gen Z Prime.